Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1-7. to This is the word of the Lord. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and they were Excuse me, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do this good to you because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your King David, uh, Lord, a, a man after your own heart. As we open your word again this morning, we pray that... Um, and we look at his life, we pray that, um, that you would make um, the eyes of our hearts uh, be able to see what you would have us to see um, this morning. And that as we look at David, we look at his life, that we would also see your son Jesus. It's not very hard, frankly, Father, um, but help us nevertheless because we need it. Um, we thank you for this time, this morning, and for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, it's good to be here with you this morning. I do, um, I do enjoy this, and, and I hope that uh, it's a blessing to you. Uh, we've been continuing on in our series and in uh, the life of David here in First and Second Samuel. We uh, are, I think, a little bit more, maybe past the halfway point at this point. Um, so we're excited. I'm excited to continue with you this morning. You know, in sports. Uh, in sports talk in particular, they're always debating who is the GOAT. Now, some of you might be thinking GOAT is in scapegoat. Like if you follow baseball, Bill Buckner from the 1986 Red Sox is maybe the worst GOAT of all time. This is the guy who gets blamed for everything. But in sports these days, when they say GOAT, it's an acronym for the greatest of all time. The G-O-A-T, the GOAT. And so there's a raging debate in basketball. Is it Michael Jordan or LeBron James? In golf, is it Jack Nicklaus or Tiger Woods? Baseball, is it Babe Ruth or Willie Mays? You could go on and on. Whoever it is, they all share many commonalities. Each one of these goats, if you will, is a fierce competitor. They hate to lose more than they love to win. God gave, and they also share this in common, God gave each one of them a special set of physical gifts. And each one's highest ambition was to be the best. 
And they accomplished great things with that ambition. You know, David had great ambition as well. We'll see that today. But it was different. It was a different kind of ambition than what these athletes have. As great as each one of these athletes is and was, they missed out on the highest ambition possible. We have ambitions, right? We want to achieve things. You know, we have an ambition maybe around reputation, security, comfort. Maybe your ambition is as simple as a quiet and undisturbed life. But we each have ambitions. The question is, are they the best ambition? Are they the highest ambition? And then secondly, how are we going about achieving that ambition? Well, from our passage today, I hope to show you that the highest and best ambition is the pursuit of God and His ways. Now, I don't know about you, but I felt that a lot of this story could have been lifted out of the pages of a novel or the script of a soap opera, of the, the, the devolution of Saul, the relationships between Saul and David and Jonathan, the side characters brought in from the, the Philistines, the Amalekite messenger. I mean, even as our brother was reading the passage to this morning, I'd forgotten about Nabal. Remember Nabal? I mean, there's so many things to keep track of. So if you've had a difficult time keeping up with all of the twists and turns in, in this passage, I, I've got some bad news for you. There's more of that today. It might even get worse before it gets better. But by the conclusion of today's passage, we find David on the cusp of accepting kingship of the full kingdom. Before we get there, though, God has more work to do. So I just want to take a few minutes to sort of level set us with our three chapters this morning. And then after that, I'm going to pull out a few different things that I think highlight what I think God is trying to show us this morning. So Saul is dead, right? He, does, he just died. And the path appears clear for David to take the throne of both kingdoms, of all of Israel. But before he does that, before he does anything, what does he do? He inquires of the Lord, Lord, should I go up to Judah? Yes. Well, what city should I go to? You go to Hebron. And when he gets there, the men of Judah anoint him king. But it really wasn't quite that simple. Saul's people, and in particular his general, Abner, wouldn't give up that easily. You know, after all, monarchies are family affairs, right? I mean, Queen Elizabeth died. It wasn't like some usurper from outside the House of Windsor got to take the throne. It's going to be King Charles. And so after Saul's death, actually, excuse me, uh, and that may have been partly why Abner put Saul's son, Ishbosheth as king. But Abner wasn't primarily concerned with keeping the dynasty in the family of Saul. That wasn't his primary concern. As we will see, his ambition was way more about his power and status. So after Saul's death, we have this divided kingdom. David's ruling in the south, Judah in the south, and Ishbosheth, really as the puppet king of Abner, is ruling in the north. And so Abner, Ishbosheth's general, and then David, excuse me, Joab, David's general, they agree to this kind of representative fight uh, between 12 men from each side. And uh, it's possibly that, possible that this, this battle, this kind of mini battle, if you will, was meant to determine who the king of all Israel would be. 
In any case, we're told that each combatant kills his opponent and all 24 men die. And after this, really a full-scale full battle ensues between the two kingdoms. And really, the whole of chapter 2, verses 12 through 32, is summarized by the first verse of chapter 3, where it says this, There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And the key part of that verse is what comes next. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Now, one thing I will note is that in the following five verses, verses 2 through 5, what we see is that um, it talks about all of the sons that were born to David at Hebron and the many wives that he had those sons by. Just, Just make a note of that. So what follows next after that is really an exchange between Abner and Ishbosheth regarding Abner's sleeping with one of Saul's concubines. Now, this is a big deal. This is a big deal, right? Abner sleeping with Rizpah was more than just a, uh, you know, a, an immoral act. It had the effect of Abner declaring that he was the one with the authority in the kingdom. You sleep with the king's concubines, you're making claims to the king's authority. And so Abner's actions also reflect really how weak Ishbosheth was. His name Ishbosheth means man of shame. He really was very weak. We don't know much about him. You think about the fact that three of Saul's sons died with him on the battlefield at Mount Gilboa. Ishbosheth was not one of them. He was back home doing whatever. And so that said, obviously Ishbosheth didn't care for, for Saul's actions. He called him out and the This was really just the trigger that Abner was looking for to break ranks and go after David. And now what's interesting is what David, excuse me, what Abner says here in verses 9 and 10. I'm just drawing your attention to this in particular. And this is what he, so so Abner on on the heels of Ishbosheth accusing him of, of sleeping with Rizpah, which he did. He never denied it. What he says, though, is, God God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David... What the Lord has sworn to him. And what is that? Is to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and Judah. Now that's, I think, is very interesting. The reason I draw it to your attention is that Abner's disobedience is in light of clear revelation from God. He knew that God had anointed David king to be over Judah and Israel, both parts of the kingdom. And yet, and yet, he put forth Ishbosheth as the king. And why? Because his ambition was for power. So Abner comes to David then after the heels of this falling out with Ishbosheth, and he, he tries to make amends, and David accepts him. And we're going to focus on that part of the story here in a minute as well. We're going to zoom in on, on what, that, what that looks like and why David did that. Why was David keen to make peace with Abner? And just a little bit of foreshadowing. David didn't do it in self-interest. Anyhow, Joab comes back from battle and he hears that Abner has offered David the northern kingdom and he's flabbergasted. How could David have let this enemy go free? And so Joab, and I would say what could only be described as a murderous and treacherous plot, calls for Abner to meet him at the city gate, ostensibly under the, the banner of peace. Come meet me, let's discuss here at the city gate. And when Abner comes... Joab stabs him in the gut, kills him dead. 
Joab claimed that he did it to protect David from Abner, and some commentators have speculated that his motivations were mixed. Yes, he wanted some revenge for the death of his brother, but he also wanted to protect David from his enemy. But the scriptures are clear. He killed Abner in revenge. And so David quickly denies any knowledge of Joab's plan and puts on an elaborate mourning and death ceremony for Abner. We're about towards the end here of chapter 3. But at a moment when David probably, this is just an interesting observation as well, you know, we're going to highlight the things that David did so well today mostly, but I do want to highlight that he's not perfect. He had many wives, as we saw in the first part of chapter 3. Deuteronomy is very clear. The king of Israel is to not have many wives. Okay? Now, he did it probably as a matter of political expediency, but it doesn't excuse it. At the same time here, we see at the end of chapter 3, verse 39, I would just draw your attention to what David says. He says in verse 39, And I was gentle today, though anointed king. It's as if he was admitting the fact, I should have done something about Joab, but I didn't. These men, the sons of Zeruiah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. And sadly, we'll see that this is really, this weakness is a sign of some things to come. David was not good at keeping his own house in order. But all that to say here as we wrap up just kind of this this 30,000 jet tour of our, our four chapters the passage wraps up in chapter 4 where the two warriors, uh, or two warriors from a northern tribe, uh, Rechab and Baana, speak into, uh, excuse me, sneak into Ishboseth's quarters and kill him while he is sleeping. Rechab and, and Baana bring his head to David, saying, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. Now that should sound somewhat familiar a messenger coming and claiming, I've done a good thing for you, King David. Look, I killed one of your enemies. Do you remember what David did last week to the Amalekite that came and said, hey, I killed King Saul? Well, the same thing happens to these two men. He kills them. He has them executed for their treacherous act. And so that brings us to the end of these three chapters. And we'll see next week with Ishbosheth and Abner dead, the path for David's full kingship is clear. Okay. So I wanted to kind of give you that jet tour level set. And I think you might be asking, at least if you're, if you're like me, you might be asking, what, what exactly is God trying to show us in these three, ch- this, these three chapters? It's pretty ugly. It's pretty ugly out there. I mean, it's, this reads to me more like a mafia movie. I mean, there's murders, war, infighting, political intrigue, power plays, adultery. I mean, after accepting Abner's offer of peace in chapter 3, I mean, honestly, it wouldn't have surprised me if David had said something like this. Someday, and that day may never come, I may call upon you to do me a favor. Commentator Bill Arnold, I think, Arnold, offers a, a helpful framework for First and Second Samuel. I think, what... You know, why, are the, why is this in the Bible? Why did God have this part of his story in the Bible? Beyond just the, the, I mean, David being an amazing man who is a man after God's own heart. What questions are trying to be answered? And I think it's very helpful what Arnold says. First, he says, 
It's trying to, these, these two chapters are trying to answer the question, what should the Jewish monarchy look like? And then the second question is, who is suitable to be king? And in these three chapters today, I think that the narrator is providing some of the answer to that second question. What must our king be like? What are his characteristics? And so what we see then is a man whose highest ambition, a king whose highest ambition is God in his ways. And his ambition is marked by three things that we're going to highlight next. Three godly characteristics. It's patience, peacemaking, and purity. So the first point in your outlines, that was all introduction, by the way. Um, the first point in your outlines is patience. Godly ambition is patient. Now the late Tom Petty, some of you will know this song, the late Tom Petty sang, the waiting is the hardest part. Every day you get one more yard, you take it on faith, you take it to the heart. The waiting is the hardest part. David was an amazing songwriter, maybe the best songwriter ever, and I think he could have as easily written those lyrics as Tom Petty did. You see, he had to wait 15 years, at least 15 years, from the time that Samuel anointed him as king of Israel until he actually became king of Israel. If you think about it, he was anointed by Samuel, and then shortly thereafter, he went and killed king, uh, excuse me, uh, Goliath. So they speculate that when he killed Goliath, he was 15-year-old, give or take. Well, now he's 30 years old when he gets the kingdom, uh, at least the southern kingdom. That's 15 years that he had to wait. Now, he didn't know. We knew 15 years. It's like, oh, in the grand scheme of things, that's maybe not so long. He had no idea. He didn't know if the king, kingdom was going to come to him the next day or the day after that or a month later or 15 years more so that he was waiting 30 years. He had no idea. That kind of waiting is intense. It's gutting to have to wait that long. It can be disheartening to have to wait that long. But David was able to wait. He could be patient because he trusted God to make good on his promises. The same God that delivered him from the paw of the bear and the lion is the same God that would deliver him to the throne. The same Lord that delivered Goliath into his hands would not leave him now. And the same heavenly Father that delivered him from Saul would deliver him from this waiting. But the, uh, the Lord would do it on his own time, and so David could wait. Now, at the same time, it's not like as he waited, he was inactive or passive. He acted. Remember how he offered to help the Philistines in chapter 29? I mean, he was going to go actually battle Saul with the Philistines. Now, they turned down his help. They didn't trust him. But he was taking an active role to bring about what he knew the Lord had ordained to take place. He wasn't inactive. He wasn't passive. When he acted, though, it was always within the parameters of God's revealed will. And so what does that mean then for us? What does it mean to have to wait on the Lord? I mean, waiting for him to show you what to do next? Waiting for him to resolve things in his way? I mean, as you can probably already tell, I can, we know what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you're passive. 
and that you don't do anything. Proverbs 16.9 says this, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. God directs our steps. He establishes our steps. He tells us where to go. He's sovereign. He ordains. But what comes before that? What does it say? A man plans his ways. We do not sit idly by. We make a plan. We take action. But here's the key piece. All the while, we hold our hand open with that plan. Lord, it's yours. Change it if you will. Let me listen to you. And it means also that as we plan and do, we continually seek the Lord. We seek His face. We read His Word. We pray. And as my mom was always uh, quick to tell me, we listen to His servants. God speaks through His servants, especially those that are older and wiser and more experienced than we are. My final observation here about David's patience David does, it's just really interesting to me. David doesn't seem to ask why. God, why are you making me wait? But I think that's unusual. I think it's super normal, like totally normal to ask why. Why am I waiting? Why isn't this tension resolved? I'm stuck in this job with a terrible boss. Why can't I find something new? I want to be married. Why haven't I found a spouse? We want children. Why are we still waiting? I need to be healed. This illness is crushing me. Why are you holding back healing, Lord? What are you waiting for? And so often, so often, the answer to that question is your character. God is forming you, making you into who he wants you to be. And here's the thing. 99.99% of the time, that's not some kind of world-changing person or titan of business or famous person or athlete. He's changing you into a person after his own heart, a person who is more patient, a person who is compassionate, who is tender, who is loving, who is joyful, who is faithful, in the small things and in the big things, because they've been tested. A person who is more like Jesus. James writes to us, or he wrote to the first century church and to us today as well, of course, in the first chapter of his book, verses 2 and 4. I know many of you know this, but we can all use the reminder. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of various kinds, like waiting. That's a trial. Why? Why, is that? Why count it as joy? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And, steadfa- and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Man, that is a good promise, brothers and sisters. God is perfecting and completing you, that you'll lack nothing. As you wait on him. Man, that's a good promise. If you're waiting today, you need to claim that promise. David could wait, and so can you. When you make your highest ambition, not marriage, not work, not children, not healing, not reputation, not even ministry. When you make your highest ambition 
the pursuit of God himself and his ways. So godly ambition then is marked by patience. It's also marked by peacemaking. Now, peacemaking can mean different things. You can make peace with a situation in your life, come to accept something that is suboptimal. For example, I've always wanted to be taller. But I made peace in my late teens that it wasn't going to happen. But I did receive a good piece of news this week. I'm 5'8", and I for many years have been walking around thinking that 5'10 was the average American uh, male's height. It's actually 5'9", so I'm only an inch short. (laughs) So that's not too bad. But I made peace. But that's not the kind of peace we're talking about here. You can make peace between two warring parties. Parents, you know what I'm talking about here. Although I'm not sure how long that peace lasts, it's usually temporary, okay? It's a little bit more like a detente between two warring nations. Um, There's another kind of peacemaking, that's not what we're talking about, but there's another kind of peacemaking that costs you personally, but is worth it for the accomplishment of something greater. That's the kind of peacemaking that we see from David. What do I mean? Well, let's take a look again at chapter 3. Again, Abner is a man that is clearly only out for himself and his glory. He set up his, his puppet king, Ishbosheth, as a front to oppose David. And when that didn't work out, he flipped and pretended to be a friend of David. I mean, this guy was a politician before there were politics, right? What was, what's most expedient for Abner? That's what I'm going to do. But how did David respond when Abner came to him? He welcomed Abner. And made peace with him. Let's just real, real quick look at this. Um, this is again chapter 3. And uh, let's start in verse 20 of chapter 3. When Abner, so just a little bit of background. Abner sort of um, got, got together all the elders of the northern nation and said, hey, I want to go make peace with David. And they said, yeah, we think this is a good thing. Go do it. But starting in chapter 20, it says this. When Abner came with 20 men to David a Hebron, David made a feast for Abner. And the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my Lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. He went in peace. That's very odd, if you think about it. To be honest, Joab, next few verses we'll see, Joab responded, frankly, a lot like I think I would have. Read with me in verses 24 and 25. This is Joab's response to what has happened. He's he's been out making war. He comes back. He hears that David is going to make peace with the northern kingdom and with Abner. And here's what he says. What have you done? What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you've sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and coming in. And to know that all that you are doing. Abner was at best out for his own interest and at worst a mortal enemy. So why did David make peace? I mean, I think to some degree, Joab was probably right. He saw through some of what Abner was after. So why would David make peace with this guy? Because for David, God's kingdom came first. It wasn't about David's kingdom. It was about God's kingdom and God's ways first. David didn't make it personal. It wasn't about him. It was about the kingdom and getting it back together. 
Yes, Abner had wronged him, right? But it was in verse 1 of, but as verse 1 rather of chapter 3 tells us, there was a long war between Judah and Israel, and the opportunity to unify the kingdom and in the war was more important to David than his personal rights. You know, peace and peacemaking is a big deal to King Jesus. It's a really big deal. There are so many verses about peace and peacemaking. Let me just read a handful for you here. Psalm 34, 14. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Matthew 5, 24. Leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled. Make peace with your brother. And then come and offer your gift. Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Romans 14, 19, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And then James 3, 18, this is my personal favorite about peace. That a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now here's the thing. Does peace come at all costs? Is it the highest ideal? Well, of course not. Would we kill ourselves to make peace? Of course not. But could it come? Could peace require that you give up some of your personal rights? Your personal sense of justice? Absolutely. It absolutely could. And so where should we seek peace? What does this look like? Well, the shorter answer, short answer is everywhere. But in the context of this morning, and this gathering, this assembly, this meeting, I want to talk about peace in the church. Do you dislike our music? How about the way we do Sunday school? Let me just validate you. Okay, your preference is perfectly legitimate, but then so is mine, because what we're talking about here are preferences, right? Let us remember that preference is not something to break the unity and peace of the church. Even if you don't like it, what's best for the church, for God's kingdom? Now, is there someone who has wronged you? Can you forgive? And let love cover that? Like truly forgive. Like not dwell on it. Like not hold it against them. Can you truly forgive them? If the answer to that question is yes, then do it. You don't need to bring it up. But if you can't, if the hurt's too deep, then what do you need to do? You need to be bold enough, and I would say even loving enough, to risk going to them. And when you do, don't start with, you hurt me. Start with questions. Hey, when you said this, can you help me understand what you meant by it? Give the benefit of the doubt. Don't assume that you know what their intentions were. Now, for most of us, this is really, really hard. Like, really hard. <laughs> for most of us, conflict avoidance is high art. It's a skill that we've refined over a lifetime of avoiding those kinds of uncomfortable conversations and feelings. So it won't be easy. But guess what? It's not about you. 
It's not about me. It's about the kingdom. It's about the king and how we do things in his kingdom. Sometimes we just have to do it. And after all, we want to be a gospel-proclaiming church, right? We want to reveal Jesus and everything we do. That's what we say we're about. What better way to display the gospel than to make peace? That is the heart of the gospel. David made peace because his highest ambition was the pursuit of God and his ways. And that is the fuel for the places we need to make peace in our lives. That's the fuel that we need to make peace in our lives. So David's ambition was patient, it was peacemaking, and finally it was pure. Now, there's two specific ways in which David demonstrated purity. The first demonstration of his purity was after Joab revenge-murdered Abner. David went out of his way to show that he had nothing to do with his death. And three times, in fact, the narrator makes, makes it perfectly clear to us that David had nothing to do with Abner's murder. 2 Samuel 3.26, David did not know about it. 3.28, afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner. 3.37, so all the people and all Israel understood that day it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. This episode ties back to David's goal of peace in the kingdom. He could have easily killed Abner, right? I mean, it really wouldn't have been terribly difficult. When Abner came to make peace, he could have, he could have had him killed. It's the same thing with Ishbosheth, the man of shame. Ishbosheth was so lame as a king. He lived in a normal house. And do you know who he had as a guard? A maid. That's how lowly this guy was as a king. It would have been super easy for David to go and have Ishbosheth killed and consolidate power and take over the throne for both the northern and the southern kingdom. But his motives are pure. He did it the right way, even if it cost him personally. So that's the first evidence. He didn't have anything to do with Joab. And this, the second evidence has to do with these two warriors, Baana and Rechab, and their, uh, their, the murder of Ishbosheth. And they were hoping again to win David's favor, and instead they met their fate. In his purity, David could not accept their treachery. And so he had them executed, just like the Amalekite. And so you see from these two episodes, I think, clear evidence of the purity of David's ambition. But there is an overarching theme of his purity. This purity is evidenced throughout much of David's 15 years of waiting to ascend the throne. David did it the right way. I mean, think about the two times that David could have killed Saul. Twice. And he didn't do it either time. And the one time when he cut off a corner of Saul's robe, he felt so guilty about even just cutting off the corner of the guy's robe. That's how pure David's motives were as it relates to the kingdom of God. He did it the right way. He waited patiently on God. Sometimes it's said the ends justify the means. You know, if our goal is a good thing, then really how we get there is kind of a secondary matter. Now, nobody would say it doesn't matter at all or that it's immaterial. It just doesn't matter as much as the end itself, right? But the, that's not true. It does matter how you get there. 
The ends do not justify the means. Now, if you follow current news at all, it's actually kind of interesting. It's full. (laughs) It's full of stories of people taking shortcuts to achieve their goals. Maybe you've heard about this story about this upstart um, chess master, grandmaster, who has been accused of cheating over a hundred times in online chess, right? He wanted the notoriety. He wanted to be a grandmaster at chess, and so he cheated, and he's been found out. Maybe you found, maybe for the fishermen here, there was another recent story about um, some professional fishermen in Cleveland who, uh, I guess bass fishermen, who were stuffing weights into their bass to win you know, and we're not talking about a lot of money. It's like $30,000. It's not like a life-changing dollar amount. It's just ridiculous. Aaron Judge just broke the real home run record. Okay? He hit his 62nd dinger on October 4th, just a few days ago. Now, I say the real home run record, and some of you who are into baseball will know why I say that. And that's because the stuff that Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire and Barry Bonds did is completely illegitimate. It's totally illegitimate. They were full of steroids, which gave them a natural strength and speed. Aaron Judge is a 6'7", 260-pound behemoth. It's natural strength. But they wanted to win the home run record so badly that they cheated to do it. Now, those of us who like to win, including yours truly, probably doesn't surprise you. We must watch this carefully in our lives, especially in the context of ministry. You want to accomplish something, right? You want to get something done. Start a new Bible study. Reach the lost. Minister to our youth. Whatever it might be. It can be easy to justify twisting arms, laying on guilt trip, just running over people. Whatever it might be to accomplish what we want. But here's the thing those things that we do to maybe justify the end are far worse than the actual thing itself. What greater damage have we caused if we use those kinds of means to justify our ends? There's a tremendous podcast that was done about the Mars Hill Church, and I invite all of you, it's long but it's a well worth a listen if you're interested in what misusing ministry and the, using the ends kind of justifying the means. I invite you all to, to listen to that podcast. It's super well done. There's a lot to learn from it. We have, we've got to watch ourselves in these matters. The fact is, winning, and if you'll allow me to use that term in this context, just stay with me. Winning in the church isn't more ministry. It's not more people. Winning in the kingdom is this, making much of Jesus. David ascended the throne the right way because his highest ambition was not the throne itself, but Yahweh and his ways. So in our our story today as we wrap up, we see a, a worldly ambition from a few characters in our story, right? We see just a real self seeking from Abner, whatever he needed to do to stay in power. We see a, a spiteful kind of ambition 
from Joab as he revenge kills Abner for Abner killing his brother. He took justice into his own hands and he killed Abner. It's a, it's a wor worldly ambition. Here's the thing. Worldly ambition cannot suffer being slighted and always looks to avenge itself. And it's sinful. Consider Rahab and Baana. They justified killing a righteous man to accomplish their end of gaining favor with David. But there's another kind of ambition, a godly ambition that David has shown us here, in the, I think, in this passage this morning. It's, it's the highest ambition that we could ever have, and that is the pursuit of God and his ways. So I just would invite you, if you have your scriptures open, turn to Psalm 27. And I just, I want to, us to, to take a moment to look at this. I think it encapsulates what, what does this, high, what is the, the, this kind of ambition look like? And I'm just going to read the first four verses, and then we'll skip down and we'll read verses 13 and 14 from uh, Psalm 27. A wonderful psalm, a psalm that applies to so many different situations in life. Verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When evil sailors, when evil doers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after. One thing, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Skipping down to verses 13 and 14. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. I think this is what holy ambition, godly ambition looks like. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord in his temple. Earlier I said that this passage is answering the question, what must the king of Israel be like? I think David gives us a picture of an ideal king for Israel, but he wasn't perfect as we've already mentioned. Too many wives, didn't handle Joab very well. But David was looking forward to another king. David was looking forward to the truly ideal king. And in all of these things, why was David willing? Why, why didn't he just take the throne by force? Why didn't he, when Abner came to make peace, why did he react so kindly? Why did he do these things? Why is David the way that he was? And I think it's because he was looking forward to, he knew that there was another king coming after him that would be the perfect king. And so when we think about patience, do you see Jesus 
patiently waiting until he is 30 to begin his ministry. I mean, he was 12 years old when he was teaching the smartest and brightest rabbis in the temple. 12 years old. 18 more years he waited until he got the green light from his heavenly father. (laughs) Or let's make it more personal. How about the patience with which he treated his disciples or the patience with which he waits for you to confess that sin or to bring your troubles to him? Jesus is perfectly patient. When we think about peacemaking, we see Jesus as the ultimate peacemaker. Each one of us was not just a sinner in need of saving, not just a sinner in need of forgiveness, which he gives us, but also an enemy of God, an enemy who held our fist aloft. I will not submit to you, is what we said before Jesus died for us and made peace for us. With God. He gave himself up to die willingly to bring us to God. Now, earlier, it's actually interesting, earlier I said that we wouldn't be willing to kill ourselves to make peace, but he did. When we think about purity, we see from the scriptures that Jesus is without sin, like a lamb without blemish. And so, when you think about making your highest ambition the pursuit of God and his ways, I want you to see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. When you think about, why would I want my ambition to be this? What's it, not what it's worth, but but why? What's the motivation? I want you to see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying fervently and under the greatest of stress. Remember, he prayed so hard that his capillaries burst, and his sweat was mixed with blood. Now, what did he say there? What did he say? He said, not my will, but yours be done, Father. That is the heart of pursuing God in his way. Not my will, but yours be done. That would be my prayer for you this morning, brothers and sisters, that we would pursue God in his ways. And so follow Jesus in that. Please stand with me as we pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful example of David We know he wasn't perfect, and yet he was a man after your own heart, and he's modeled for us what it means to be patient and how to be patient in you. He's modeled for us peacemaking and why peacemaking is so critical. He's modeled for us what it means to be pure in our motives and to do things the right way. Lord, we know that the ends do not justify the means, but most of all, Father, we thank you for Jesus who did all of these things perfectly, and he did them perfectly because he loves you and for us because he loves us. We thank you for his sacrifice. Help us to live for him this week and not for ourselves. Help us to look for opportunities to be patient, to make peace, and to do things the right way. Father, we love you. We ask for your grace in these things. We need it. We ask for your mercy in these things. We need that as well. Father, we thank you for your love. We pray in your name. Amen.